Hello, P56 listeners, and welcome to Episode 9 of the podcast. This has been an exciting week in the aviation and transportation policy world, with Pete Buttigieg being named as President-elect Biden's Secretary of Transportation, as well as the prospect of new funding support for airlines as part of the larger bailout package. With these events, alongside everything else in the aviation and airline policy space, I can think of no greater or more perfect guest to help parse the ongoing changes to the industry than Faye Malarkey Black, president and CEO of the Regional Airline Association, where she has been a leader since 2015. In her role, she leads the industry trade organization representing 17 North American regional airlines and 150 associate members. In the United States, RAA member airlines operate 40% of the flights and at the end of 2019 employed about 70,000 individuals, as well as providing the only source of scheduled passenger air service to approximately two-thirds of the nation's airports. In her role, Ms. Black oversees the daily operations of the association, develops and executes its policy and business objectives, and serves as the primary spokesperson for the regional airline industry. With more than two decades of experience in policy, strategic leadership, business development, and management, Ms. Black has served the RAA since 1998 and was formerly Senior Vice President of Government Affairs. Faye began her career in Pennsylvania, holding key positions in voter targeting and communications in 1994 and 1996 coordinated state campaigns. She also formerly worked for U.S. Senator Harris Wofford and later served as an executive at the Smith Buckland Corporation, providing strategic advice to trade associations seeking to build effective advocacy programs and helping emerging businesses in developing democracies develop business support networks under a U.S. Agency for International Development subcontract. Ms. Black holds a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Pittsburgh and is based in Washington, D.C., where she is now joining us. Faye, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Hi, Martin. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. And thank you for that great introduction. You're welcome. I'm, I am always excited to have the opportunity to talk shop with you. So this is a great opportunity with lots of cool stuff going on. So as we dig in on the policy things affecting the airline industry today, I wanted to ask a question just in general about RAA and its member airlines. Obviously, before the pandemic, as well as today, regional airlines serve an important role in connecting smaller cities and towns to the global airline network. Can you elaborate more on the role RAA member carriers play in this niche? Sure. And thanks for starting with that question, Martin, because it really is the fundamental one. And it's one that we have gone through a lot this year, actually, because when most people think of the airlines, they think of the big airlines, and that is the limit of their experience. But in fact, as you know, but many do not, the airline industry is not a monolith. And in fact, as you mentioned in your your intro, most U.S. airports that get scheduled commercial air service are actually not served by the major airlines. They're too small. They have too few passengers traveling each way every day to support service with larger aircraft operated by larger airlines. And so that's where regionals come in. And major airlines partner with regional airlines to bring air service to every corner of the country. So we 
we're able to use, we specialize in using smaller aircraft that can bring air service what, where it would not otherwise be viable at all. And in medium-sized and larger markets, we can help to increase frequency. And both of those things are really important. So on the frequency side, it's possible that a larger aircraft could serve some of these markets where there's a mix of regionals and mainlines once or twice a day with a mainline aircraft. But that would mean that the passengers are enduring longer layovers. They may not be able to to travel into and out of markets as quickly or conveniently, and they would have less connectivity. And so a regional can come in and increase that frequency and make the connectivity more valuable to the, the residents of the community and the passengers traveling out of it. And in some cases, regionals are needed just for the existence of air service. So without that link, they have, they have no easy way to connect with a global air transport network. They could be traveling by car on the highway for four hours or five hours to get to a larger metropolitan area where they can access their air service. And businesses certainly need to see that uh, air service in the small community. And we read every year about businesses that are actually leaving communities that do have air service, but just in their view, they don't have enough. So I can't stress that value enough. So Regional airlines, despite being somewhat an unknown factor to many people, really are filling a vital role in the air transportation system just by partnering with the main lines and bringing that air service everywhere in, the, in, in North America. And I think that's a pretty important thing to note is just how much of a backbone it is. And you mentioned frequency in particular, and as business travel comes back, uh, frequency is a huge driver of business travel options and of business travel selection for people that are looking to minimize their time on the road in particular. So I think that's an important piece to highlight. Yeah, it, it really is. In fact, I think we'll talk a little bit about the CARES Act and the, the minimum air service requirements that were part of that. Those have since expired and they have they have not at this time been renewed, but those were minimum levels and communities are going to need more than a minimum level to really take part in this recovery. Obviously, the pandemic has created a lot of significant effects on the airline industry and in particular, these smaller communities and their air service. How has it affected them? Well, look, when when a community, you know, we we've heard the the main lines, everyone in the airline industry talk about the need to shrink, to contract their network. And when airlines forced to withdraw air service, right? When they retract air service, it, it's often small communities that are hit first and worst. And we are seeing that here. So there were a lot of announced uh, service terminations that took place right after the CARES Act funding uh, elapsed in, in late September. And what's, what's crucial for the smaller communities, if there's only one operator there and that operator draws down the service, then they're left without any air service at all. And we saw that, that story repeat itself across the United States several times. So that's happening. But we don't have to guess at this. This. History has a lesson for us here. The last economic uh, recession, the Great Recession that we saw, at that time, small communities lost air service in terms of departures at a rate five times greater than larger communities. And th this current scenario is magnitudes worse than that one. And we see this repeating again. The issue is these are smaller communities. They're, they're marginal routes. And by that, I mean they have fewer passengers traveling. And with fewer passengers traveling, cost increases become more significant because there are less passengers to amortize that and revenues become different. So they're, they're inherently more vulnerable to fluctuations in demand. Well, this is no fluctuation in demand. This is a full demand shock 
period stop. And we're seeing that. And in fact, we ran the numbers. And this year, compared with last year, and last year was a period of growth uh, across the airline industry and regionals were included in that. And uh, after having a, a banner year in 2019, we ran the numbers in 2020. And compared with this time last year, fully one in five markets served last year are not being served now. So this is already happening. That's right. And, and this is already happening. And keep in mind that through September 30th, and effectively, there was some carryover effect from that as well when airlines didn't want to just retract the air service only to put it right back. We had a piece of legislation that was actually requiring the upholding of air service. So despite that, we're seeing over 20% of the markets served last year, not served now. And this will worsen if there's not some intervention because we are not out of this pandemic yet. We still have a patchwork of quarantines. We still have don't travel guidance. We still have a lot of factors related to this pandemic that are exerting the most incredible influence on demand. And what we're afraid will happen is that once this air service, I mean, it's just, it's unviable now. These are marginal markets. Nobody, you know, there, there are very few passengers that are traveling because of this inherently temporary, but unfortunately long lasting effect of the pandemic. They're not traveling the way they need to, to support the air service. And without some kind of support, then that service goes away. And, and again, history tells us when the air service goes away, it's awfully hard to get it back. So we're very worried about the impact on small communities. We're already seeing it. And unfortunately, I think a lot of analysts would agree that it, that it is very likely to get worse. You had mentioned before recovery and what it looks like coming out of this. Do these cities that lose air service, you had mentioned that it's very hard for them to get air service back. For others that potentially have reduced air service, what does recovery look like? Is it slow recovery? Is it fast? Is it stagnation? What does the past kind of inform us on how the future looks for coming out of this in six months or a year or two years? whether you're looking at six months or a year or two years. Uh, and I'm, I'll take the easy answer and say we're, we're two years out. And if we do the right things, if we support the air service right now when the market is incapable of supporting it, and if we shore up other supports, such as the Essential Air Service Program, the Small Community Air Service pi uh, Program as well, so some of those other types of things, maybe we create all new programs that look at just bolstering that air service while it's vulnerable, then I think we're positioned to do very well in the recovery because of that critical nature of what regional airlines do because the air service is so needed. But I think there's an entirely different story if we're not able to get through this storm. The thing about the expiration of the CARES Act when it expired September 30th was exactly at the nexus of when the leisure travelers were dropping out and we were entering into a business travel season without business travelers. So this next tranche of funding that we are very hopeful will be forthcoming will carry the workforce through the end of March, at which time we just kind of hold our breath a little bit longer and we start to get the leisure traveler by then. We're very hopeful. We know there's a long tunnel ahead of us with the vaccine, but now that that distribution and, and the inoculations are starting, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We just need to make it through a very long tunnel so that we can be positioned to grasp that recovery and take full part in it. Obviously, these past nine months have been incredibly challenging. We, we've talked about this now. It's been very prominently out there. How have the regional airlines in particular weathered this downturn? 
I think that's a difficult question with probably a two-part answer. And the first part of the answer is if you are one of the 10,000 workers that were furloughed from the regionals, you would say not very well. And, and I think that's what drives us. I think, you know, we can't possibly say here we are, we're surviving because not all of the employees are working and not all of our members made it through. RAA saw the wind down of, of four of our members. And that was just an, a very distressing thing for us. These were our friends, uh, our colleagues. We work with them on our committees. And so it was a very personalized loss. So, you know, I think from that standpoint, there, there's been, there has been and continues to be incredible hardship. On the other hand, I am an industry veteran. I have been doing this for two decades. And a lot of people have counted regional airlines out a lot of times. And it has never happened. And there are survivors now, and these survivors are going to continue to survive, and I believe thrive, again, on the other side. Right now, regional airlines are the right size for a lot of today's demand. Um, that's an advantage. There have been carriers that have wound down. Some of that fleet has been reabsorbed. Some of those workers will be reabsorbed, albeit painfully, but into other carriers. And there is growth happening as well. And I think that there will continue to be those bright spots that we'll see more and more of them. And this industry does have a future. Absolutely, we're always going to be here. But that kind of rosy answer, I think, has another side, which is regional airlines will, will in fact be here and will thrive and survive. But We've got to look out for the communities because the smallest communities, and again, I'm harping on the, the marginality of them, they need to be protected. They need to be nurtured. We are very, very committed to serving those small communities, but we don't make those decisions on our own. And the major airlines do not have unlimited means, certainly now at this at this time, to support some of those routes and bring them along. They're making very difficult decisions even on, on some marginally profitable routes. So routes just can't afford to go into the red and stay there for very long and have any hopes of surviving. So while I do believe that our members and the service they provide will continue to be valuable and we'll be able to provide it, we do need to continue to look out for the smaller communities and make sure they're getting the supports they need to keep their air service and to make it viable again. And there will always be a niche for that kind of flying. As, as we've talked about, there just isn't a replacement for the smaller 76 seat and below aircraft that a mainline could fly. So that's important to note within this. And you had mentioned the, the four carriers that had shut down this year, that had wound down operations, and at least partially as a result of the pandemic. Are there other effects that this has had on the other parts of the airline system? and aviation industry as a whole? Yes, there, there are multiple, but the one I guess I'll talk about now, which has been near and dear to our heart for 10 years. This is a, one of the strangest things about 2020, and that's, <laughs> that's no low bar, is that we're not talking about the pilot shortage this year because there's now a pilot surplus. But I think that given what's happened in this industry, given the furloughs, given the hardship, and just given what we're seeing in terms of the risk, the perception of risk of going into the airline industry, we run the risk of turning off a new generation of, of airline professionals, of pilot professionals in particular. And those numbers that we were, we were facing down last year, the year before, are not really changing. About half of today's professional commercial airline pilot workforce will face a mandatory age 65 retirement in the next 15 years. 
somewhere around 15% will have to retire in the next five years. Some of them are taking early exits. So this has probably been accelerated beyond even those numbers that we haven't been able to get our arms around yet. So ensuring that we do have a talented and qualified new cadre of pilot professionals entering the industry is something we've got to keep our eye on because I think a consequence downstream of the industry strife, despite the fact that those of us that have been in the industry a long time know that we'll recover, know that pilots will soon be in demand. It's it's hard to get into the industry. It's hard to get the training. And I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's very expensive. And right now it doesn't look so bright. Uh, so I think we need to, to work on making it more accessible and also restoring the confidence that this is an industry that people should feel good about entering, should feel about feel good about their their daughters and sons entering. And looking at it as an investment as well and an investment for the future. Absolutely. Too, is important. I want to shift gears a little bit away from the pandemic and the economic effects of the airline market today. One of the primary missions of RAA is to represent regional airlines in Congress and to other regulatory bodies. The expiration of the CARES Act in October had significant effects on the airline industry as a whole, and RAA members in particular. Uh, we've talked a little bit about those effects with reductions in service, pullouts of various different cities. Are there any other effects that the expiration of CARES Act has had on the regionals? I think... Primarily, the, the impact has been the furloughs, and a lot of our carriers really tried to hold off on those furloughs, but the furloughs make the big names, but but the other side of it is that for those that were able to avoid furlough, that, that wasn't always easy either, and sometimes there are some really painful conversations where there's just pain to the operation, cuts to the operation, cuts to the wages of the workforce that are happening that maybe don't make the same headlines, but are another real source of pain, and unfortunately, as I said before, I think that the, the air service impacts are only beginning now, and we would we would see some more of that if there's not some kind of an intervention. And I just want to, you know, this is a good opportunity to make one point of clarification. We often hear this referred to as a bailout, and I don't want to be pedantic, but I think it's worth mentioning that one of the things that's so remarkable about the payroll support program that was implemented through the CARES Act is that every dollar of it, every single dollar had to be spent toward direct payroll costs of non non employees. So this wasn't something that an, you know, an airline is not able to just take this money and use it to offset the operation, even though costs have gone up, even though there is less revenue and, and the balance sheets, which were historically doing very well, are now straining. That, that money is not available for anything but workforce relief. And that's why it's so important. And I do think there's some good news. You know, we we've feel a little bit in the industry like we've been on a roller coaster. We certainly thought that we wouldn't drive over the cliff September 30th, and then we did. And we've been fighting like heck since then to try and bring our workers back. And we've really gotten some traction in the last couple of weeks. And I would be uh, remiss if I didn't acknowledge leadership from, from some congressmen, Senator Wicker, for example, has just been relentless, not only in his pursuit of this assistance, but in ensuring it was employee-focused and also making sure that it was something that regional airlines could access because there were, were a lot of iterations of this. And at some point, there was some discussion about maybe all of the assistance would be in the form of a loan. 
Well, a regional airline doesn't, you know, your typical regional airline, there are some exceptions, doesn't tend to have a lot of unencumbered assets lying around. That's nothing unhealthy about that. That's just related to the, the business model overall. They're not really required. And yet that's what would be required for, for these loans. If they were to be collateralized and they, they were supposed to be. And then in other cases, you know, you're being asked for warrants. So, you know, there were a lot of lawmakers that really looked out, not just for getting the relief to airline workers, but also making sure that everyone, large and small, could access it. And the other two that were extremely helpful uh, were both Representative Graves, but Chairman Graves of the full Transportation Committee and Chairman Graves of the Aviation Subcommittee and Ranking Member DeFazio were just tremendous allies in making sure that the small carriers were not left out of this. And we're leaning to them again. And, and we've got new heroes to add to our list because Senators Manchin and Collins, two renowned moderates, have come up with a solution. And now it, it appears, Martin, that leadership is taking it seriously. And we've got the Speaker and the House Majority Leader have been talking, and the White House has been participating through Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. And we're very, we're, we're more optimistic than we've been in weeks, dare I say months, on this, because it really does appear there could be light at the end of the tunnel. And obviously, a quick note with this, that we are having this conversation at about 3 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, December 17th. So <laughs> this is the picture of where we're looking at right now, which is good. I'm, I'm glad to see, because obviously dynamic and the Nature's podcast is static. So the next question I have, obviously, we get through CARES Act funding and get through the potential passage of the CARES Act through Congress. What other legislative issues are of priority moving into 2021? Well, right now, we, like most organizations, are focusing on the transition, both the transition in the administration and also the seating of the 117th Congress. And one of the things, Martin, that we dealt with and I, I alluded to this in my last answer with with this Congress was just they, they didn't understand regional airlines and the business model. And we ended up trying to inject detailed answers and information into a process that was driven by sound bites in the middle of the night, trying to convey information to exhausted policymakers and ensure that they could in turn convey it again at a moment's notice. And so our, our priority number one is educating the new incoming Congress and the administration on exactly what a regional airline is, the valuable role that we play, and how our business model works. Beyond that, obviously right now we continue to face an existential threat across the entire airline industry and our focus will be making sure that we can take part in the recovery, that regional airlines thrive again, and that small communities continue to get the air service that they rely on. And in terms of some detail, I think on that last point, we'll start to look at programs like the Stalwart Program, the Essential Air Service, making sure that the the communities that are in that that program now, and maybe you're not meeting the, in, the airports aren't meeting the enplanements or the, um, their, the per passenger cost of the subsidy is temporarily higher because there are fewer passengers traveling. Because of these temporary factors, we want to make sure that no community loses their essential air service program. We've been working with Senator Collins and some of the others and, and Senator Wicker on that, and we, we feel good that there's, there's some good reception there. We'll continue those efforts next year and continuing to make sure that regional airlines have good access to the airspace. That is an issue that, you know, we're, we're no longer having, uh, at least front of, you know, front of mind conversations about air traffic control, but making sure that it's understood that we need parity for regional airlines, both in the costs and the way we amortize it over our aircraft and the access itself will continue. And then lastly, 
really the higher education element that you and I have talked about lots of times, but your listeners may not be aware of, but there is a substantial gap between the availability of student loan funds, which have a ceiling, and the actual cost of getting a pilot's education. So flight training in a college degree or flight training in a, in a program, this is not something that student loans reach right now. And students or their families are forced to go to the private markets to make up for this funding. So if, if you can get the credit for it, you, you, know, you can, can get a private loan for this. If you don't have the credit scores and you don't have access to private capital or wealth, then you don't get into this industry. Unless, unless you want to work for, you know, everyone has the story about the individual who worked four jobs and saved up money and suffered incredible hardship to pursue this dream. And I have tremendous respect for those individuals um, behind those stories. But by golly, we've got a shortage, you know, and, and we may not have a shortage right now, but we will soon have one again. One again. Should we be making it this hard? The answer is no. Uh, so we're going to focus on that and we're going to continue to focus on on structured training pathways. We continue to believe that those offer the best proficiency levels. We see it in our training. The data shows it consistently. And so these will all be part of our education efforts. And I think you'll see them as priorities next Congress. Excellent. And obviously, there is a lot that goes into those discussions that will become more of a priority later. In particular, this should be a focus now as we ramp up so that we are able to recover and meet the needs of that recovery in a few years, which is another question I'll ask in a few minutes. Uh, but before I get to that, obviously, lots of news this week on the transition aspect, as you mentioned, with the nomination of Pete Buttigieg to Secretary of Transportation by Joe Biden. Are there areas where you see the Biden administration's incoming policy priorities intersecting with the needs of the airline industry and the regional airlines? Absolutely. You know, the, the, the Biden campaign really emphasized infrastructure. And in fact, Pete Buttigieg, uh, when he was a candidate, also had a very, very detailed infrastructure plan, including a, a lot of uh, fleshed out plans for, for transportation. And the other thing I think is is really, you know, and that, that's obviously going to be so important. And as we're, we're looking at how we can recover, how airlines, how transportation generally fits into the, the nation's economy, infrastructure will continue to be very important, I think, to this administration. And that aligns very well. We obviously, you know, we, we think this is this is going to continue to be really important to airlines. It'll be a focus on how transportation fits within the nation's economy. Um, we're a fundamental driver of it, but we need infrastructure. Airports need investments. Um, small communities need investments. And, and there's a human infrastructure as well. And I think all of those could, could become a focus. And certainly we, we will be talking to that to the administration during the transition and afterward, uh, educating on, on some of those other priorities. But one other thing that I would say about Pete Buttigieg is that he's got a real reputation for being a consensus builder and for listening and for being data driven. And I, I like that. I, I think that that's going to to, to do very well. And he also has a really talented FAA administrator who I don't think is going anywhere. Um, he's got a he's got a five year term and, and it's my hope he'll carry it out because he's got the experience and they certainly could make the dream team. I, I really believe that the, the nominee, Pete Buttigieg, would would be able to rely on 
uh, Administrator Dixon, and there, there would be a good, strong working relationship there with an expert in aviation and aviation safety that could help really get Buttigieg to hit the ground running. That's great. I think also the other piece to this, I've seen some of uh, Biden's education plans, and I think that would really well mend together some of the educational challenges that we've talked about and building up not just a pilot workforce, but a maintenance workforce, as well as other skilled areas in the aviation industry as a whole. So that's another thing that I'm keenly watching and looking forward to seeing those plans continue to develop. Yes, you raise a great point because we've talked a lot about pilot shortages, but there is a technician shortage as well. And the FAA has two programs that it stood up this year that are pilot programs on trying to draw more pilots and more maintenance technicians into the industry. And that's something that the Biden administration would then have oversight of. And and I think they're going to continue to be very important. So I hope we do see that focus and we're certainly going to try to promote it. This is actually a good segue into my next question, uh, particularly as we talk about staffing and workforce. What, if any, limiting factors will there be to the recovery for regional airlines from where you see moving forward? I really don't, Martin. I think the limiting factor will be how long the pandemic continues and how quickly we recover. But I would not really make a distinction between regionals and mainlines with that. I think that that is going to be the million dollar question across the board. And it's just whether, you know, whether or not we're able to get the funding that we can keep our workers. That's going to be a key difference, too, because that's going to impact the timing of the recovery, even where we bring workers back. And you know this because you are a pilot, but you understand the complicated series of training events that take place. It's a first in, first out scenario. So when you add or re- or subtract pilot staffing, you have this incredible transition throughout the organization that spawns a lot of training. So you're going to have to recertify for a different seat because you're certified not just for your seat, but for your aircraft type. You'll have to recertify for a different aircraft type in some cases, depending on the changes. And then that all goes in reverse order when you come back. And this is not a training that takes days. This is something that ordinarily could take months. And we're also going to be introducing simulator bottlenecks because the simulators are already in demand. They're already being used at their maximum capacity. So what happens when we have a, a great day a great deluge of returning to work pilots to train? So those are the types of questions that we have to ask and answer in order to make sure that, that we can take part of the recovery and that we can bring air service back to all the communities when they need it so that they can take part of the recovery because they will need their air service to do so. It is absolutely, I've heard it referred to as a a cascade and both a a bubble and a cascade of training events that are needed, particularly at the mainline carriers that have multiple different aircraft types. At the regionals, my guess is it's a little bit more simple because I think the most a carrier has right now is two different types or two and a half different types (laughs) if you count the different CRJ models. 2.7567 or pi. Yeah, something like that. But I think 
with that, it, it is a challenge. And I know looking back, I, I'm a very big student of history with regards to how recovery happens and how these airlines manage these different types of events. We saw when capacity was constrained earlier, significant upfront cost. And that's something that these carriers will have to consider as well of them sending pilots as far away as France and other parts of Europe to get simulator time because that was where the simulators were available. And for those that are not aware of what one of these simulators look like, looks like. It's not like I can go and put it up in my extra bedroom at home. They require a lot of infrastructure. There's significant cost to it and they can't be built overnight. They also have to be certified by the FAA as well. So it's not an easy thing and it's something I think that the carriers are going to have to keep a very close eye on coming out of this is not just bringing everybody back but also looking at what that new piece is going to look like and how things might change with regards to the pilot supply piece. Because as we've mentioned before, I think there are likely going to be constraints on pilot supply coming out of this. And what's going to be fascinating to see is how quickly that comes about. I know that when we first started working together back in 2012, it was a pretty slow process that ramped up, then turned around to 2014 pretty quickly. My guess would be we might even see this go even faster this time around because we've had all these retirements and early outs. Yeah, I, th I think so. And I think the, the the artificial constraint, as we've covered well, is that cascade of training. And, you know, that there's something, you know, you say that you're a student of history and I am, too. And in the, the late 90s, early 2000s and, and beyond, when we saw fuel cost escalations, some EAS carriers were, were dealing with that and, and a couple of carriers actually went out of went out of business. And, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and other carriers came in and tried to start that service back up. But some of those communities stayed dark for a year or longer. And it was because of that training, because they were trying to scale up quickly. And, and you just, you know, it, it's, it's too large, it's too much of a machine to do that. And the, and the resources are too constrained. So there is real life history that shows that even if you have the pilots, even if you have the will and the money, and the ability to serve the communities, you still have to go through the process. And that's a process that takes some time. I have a question about the future of aircraft in particular for the regional airline industry. We see Embraer as kind of the almost sole survivor right now with the provider of the Embraer 175, also considering an introduction of a turboprop aircraft. We see some smaller operators and smaller uh, manufacturers building aircraft like ATR and the entrant now of potentially electric aircraft on the very small end, the nine seat market. Where do you see this kind of going in the future with regards to a lack of supply of regional aircraft from the, even from the nine seat market all the way up to the 76 seat market? Because right now there's no replacement aircraft for that. Yeah, and, and, you know, if we would have had this podcast a decade and a half ago, we would have been talking about that very small aircraft, that the lack of a clean sheet turboprop or replacement facsimile thereof for that nine seat, the very small market. And now we have the Technum and you reference the electric aircraft, Alice. We have one of our members, Cape Air, is actually the first, I think, globally airline to, put, to place an order for an all-electric aircraft. So there is innovation there that 10 years ago we were despairing of never seeing. So forgive me for a little bit of optimism, but I am optimistic because I think that there is a demand and I think that the manufacturers will rise to the occasion and, and fill the demand. But I will acknowledge that there is a challenge now 
We've had consolidation in the manufacturers uh, of regional aircraft. They still exist. They're still tremendous partners. But we've obviously seen the sunset of the Mitsubishi program and the purchase of, of Bombardier. Now, Bombardier is still very engaged with the industry in the aftermarket. But that is uh, very different than what it was before. And we have Embraer, who continues to be a good partner. And I think all eyes are on them right now. But, but that's not to say that there wouldn't be another entrant to come in. Now is certainly a, a good time both for Embraer to take advantage of being the major player in the market and a great time for a new entrant to come in and, and make a viable run at, at, at meeting a real need. It will be definitely something to watch out for for the future, particularly if pilots are looking at what aircraft they might fly on their stepping stone or passengers are looking at what that next step is for them as they fly on our nation's regional aircraft. Well, Faye, that is all of the questions I have for you today, with the exception of the question that I ask every guest. If you could wave a magic wand and change or fix one thing about the aviation industry, what would you change and why? If I had a magic wand, I would make sure that every, everyone could afford their training to become a pilot, to become a, a technician, that they could afford their training. And I would continue to wave that wand and make sure that we reached people and inspired them about aviation because this really is a cool industry. It remains a, a really cool profession and not just becoming a pilot or a maintainer, but also a dispatcher, a flight attendant. These are these are incredible jobs in an incredible industry. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't really know that it's out there. And, and I, I mean that exactly as I said it. We I was involved with a foundation. And at one point, we took some children up to see the New York Tracon. And they flew up there thanks to the generous donation of a flight from JetBlue. And we found that the journey was actually the attraction because a lot of these children had never been on board a commercial aircraft. They'd never flown before because that is outside of their family's means. And if we don't take a lesson away from that and understand that we need to be more creative in ensuring that this next generation of aviators, first of all, gets exposed to the industry and engaged by it. And that means sending people to the classroom, making sure that they're speaking in generationally relevant terms, boy, making sure that they look like them so that we can can make some inroads on a diversification of, of, our, of our workforce and making our flight decks look a lot more like our, our cabins. All of those things require us going out and engaging with kids where they are. But it's not enough to just inspire that interest. We've got to make sure that they can follow a path. We don't want to tell them how nice something is on the other side of the river without providing a bridge. And what I talked about before, I'll bring up again, since I don't have a magic wand, what I will do is pursue through the, the policy environment, uh, higher ed provision and in next year's higher ed reauthorization will be up and we're going to pursue a provision that starts to right size the cost in, in looking specifically in this case at the pilot training in education uh, realm, but right sizing and, and realigning those student loan funds so that they can actually come a lot closer to covering the real cost of the, of the pilot training because it is great on the other side. The industry is going to continue to do tuition reimbursements and bonuses and, and other things to draw people and reward them on the other side, but we've got to get them across the river. So I don't have a magic wand, but I but I do have that policy aspiration. And I would encourage all of your listeners, um, if you could take one thing away from this, is to write your lawmakers and say, you know, it's too expensive to become a pilot and, and people can't afford it and, and look at higher ed as maybe a solution here. 
Absolutely. And I think having that ability to participate, a lot of people don't necessarily understand that is that it's easy to write a letter or make a phone call to an elected official. And a lot of times we don't. And so having that ability to do that, to sell that story to your elected officials is incredibly important. I also, because I know sometimes it's it's tough to, to call out the good work that your organization is doing, want to mention as well that RAA has several scholarships that they've offered in the past, thanks to the generous support of their membership for maintenance students as well as pilot students. So I'll, I'll put the th- shout out to the website here in a second when I finish everything up, but that's another area where we see continued support, not just from the association, but from others as well that have already crossed that bridge that are making the path clearer for everyone else. Thank you, Martin. So thank you for offering that scholarship. I know several students that have uh, received it and it's helped the students make great strides in their training and great strides towards achieving their dreams. Well, I tell you, if you want to be inspired for the day and and here in 2020, who doesn't need a little boost? Go to our website, please, and and check out in our annual report. We've got a little vignettes about the scholarship winners this year and they've got incredible stories. And it's so the, the most difficult thing about our scholarship is selecting the recipients, because any one of the hundreds would merit this award. I wish we could give a million of these scholarships out. And so we're, we'd be very pleased to have you tell uh, your listeners about it. And if, you, if you're trying to get into this industry, please do apply for the scholarship and uh, tell us your story and, and we'll do what we can to support. Well, Faye, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule during this frenetic time of legislative action as well as transition between administrations to chat with me today and to share your insights with our listeners. Well, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure and it's always great talking with you and I look forward to listening to this and I look forward to all your podcasts. Thank you. Well, obviously, as we mentioned before, more information about the Regional Airline Association, as well as regular updates about legislation and policy and how it affects the regional airlines can be found at the RAA website, which is www.raa.org. In addition, more up-to-date and regular posts can be found on Twitter at the organization's Twitter username at RAA Tweets. As always, the P56 podcast can be found at p56podcast.com or via your preferred streaming service. You can find us on Twitter at p56podcast or on Facebook at p56aviationpodcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to catching up with you all on the next episode. Have a great day.